You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. Later in the program, we rebroadcast an interview related to the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project, an initiative that puts thousands of acres of pristine forest at risk. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have the latest edition of Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines. On December 7th at the Monroe County Commissioner's Meeting, Monroe County Health Administrator Lori Kelly gave an update on the rising cases of Omicron and influenza. Good morning. Um, Just wanted to give a few updates. We are monitoring the rise in cases of Omicron variants BQ1.1 and BQ1. They are now accounting for approximately 63% of cases. Around 50% of the United States is reporting moderate to high COVID levels in wastewater samples. Of these sites, 22% are seeing some of the highest virus levels in samples since December 1st of 2021. Wow. Um, Indiana is seeing high levels of influenza. The predominant strain is influenza A. This is included in the current makeup of the flu vaccine. Flu shots and all vaccines are available at the public health clinic. You can call 812-334-8374 for an appointment. Commissioner Lee Jones emphasized the importance of getting the flu vaccine this year due to less people having a natural immunity to it. I've been hearing a lot about this influenza and that um, people are particularly unlikely to have immunity to it. Um, So probably getting flu shots is even more important. I had heard that it's a strain that um, hasn't been seen for 80 years or something, so almost no one has ever experienced it before and has any natural immunity. Kelly responded that there are higher rates of hospitalization from this flu variant as well. Uh, Yes, definitely. So cases are very high right now. Um, We are seeing increased hospitalizations from this flu vaccine. So it's very important to get the flu shot um, and continue to do other measures such as our good hand hygiene and monitoring for symptoms. Commissioner Julie Thomas thanked Kelly for the update and commented to the public that it is not too late to get vaccinated. During public comment, Monroe County resident Lori Borman spoke out against the trees cut down on Gordon Pike, asking the commissioners to consider the trees when taking on a project. My name is Lori Borman, and I'm a resident of the Highlands. Um, A Chinese proverb states that the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is to plant a tree is now. Our neighborhood has lost dozens of trees, if not 100, in just two days due to utility easement rights. But just because it's legal, 
doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. While I don't like this development for the sake of diesel spouting trucks to rumble from I-69 to Sayre Road and save five minutes, I accept that it's a done deal. I also accept that the tree destruction is a done deal. They're gone. As they say, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. What I don't accept and really think is a moral imperative in today's climate crisis is that the best we're promised is the county will look into tree replacement after the entire project is done three to four years from now. That's simply not acceptable. I'm grateful to hear from Julie Thomas that the county would like to implement a plan as soon as next year about tree replacement. Three to four years, we have to, because we have to reverse what this destruction looks like. Gordon Pike is now Stumptown Street. And I have pictures of the before and after of what this looks like, and you will be shocked. The forest directory from Canopy Bloomington is here today on Zoom. And she is knowledgeable about mitigation plans and would like to help the plan to correct this. We can refer the issue to the Monroe County Environmental Commission um, to develop a standard for tree plan analysis prior to utility removal, as many cities and counties do from Seattle to Pennsylvania. We can include requirements to replant what was ripped from the ground. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's just that we must have requirements. We must have oversight and we must do better for future projects. Utilities have been parking their vendor equipment on Wiccans behind my house for more than six months now. They spout diesel fumes and run their engines for half an hour every morning, leave their equipment there all day, every day. Despite requests to remove move equipment, there is no respite. The county doesn't have to be shackled and bound by these utilities like I am. We can regulate them as well so they don't ruin our air and land. Please at least do this for my neighbors along Gordon Pike if not for me, an AT&T Springs truck stop in my backyard. I should be selling coffee and donuts to them and get something on it. I plant a tree today, not so I can enjoy it, because I might not be around here then, but I plant it for future generations, for our children and our grandchildren. It is for them that I ask you to vote today to commit to requirements and make it happen sooner, not after a project is completed. Thank you. The commissioners later heard from County Attorney Jeff Cockrell, who presented an amendment to the Memorandum of Understanding with the Monroe County Convention Center. Uh, Yes, as I'm sure you're all well aware that the county has operated the convention center for a a number of years. We do that with a partnership with the convention center management company, which is a associated with downtown uh, Bloomington Inc. Uh, This year, the county council uh, set the uh, rate at 400,000 for their services. And so this is, this is an amount that has been appropriated. And again, this is for the, the county's continued operation contract for the county convention center. Commissioner Penny Givens said the rate hasn't been increased since 2014 and agreed it was time. Journalist Dave Askins asked how the Convention Center Management is funded. Convention Center Management Company Executive Director Talisha Kopuk responded. 
And uh, this contract is funded solely by the revenue generated at the convention center from room rentals and the percentage. Um, the funds generated uh, at that building are turned over to a Monroe County Convention Center dedicated revenue account. And um, it's, it's a management fee to operate the current convention center. Um, this is a 5% increase uh, as Penny Myth Commissioner Githens mentioned uh, it's been since 2014 since we've raised this. Covers basic management expenses of personnel, audit, insurance, office supplies, those types of activities. Um, but it sets out the responsibilities uh, for our, our team and uh, to follow, uh, to manage the convention center. And um, this year there were 422 events, which we're pretty excited about that. In normal years, maybe between 500, 500 50. Um, and next year looks just as strong. Um, so we're pretty happy about that. We appreciate your consideration and support um, and a great partnership as well. The commissioners unanimously approved the Convention Center Management Agreement Amendment. The next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on December 14th. Earlier this year, Inside Outdoors hosts Richard Reardon and Don Jordan spoke with activist Andy Mahler from Hartwood. This show covered aspects of the Indiana Forest Service project at Buffalo Springs that puts thousands of acres of pristine forest at risk. Although it first aired in February of this year, it is still timely because the period for public comment ends at midnight on December 19th. We turn to host Rich Reardon for more. Well, anyway, uh, Andy, we we really appreciate you being on the on the program, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about the forest because we've been hearing all about the uh, the problems. So let me again let you introduce yourself and and get us started. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Don. So good to see you guys, uh, even at a, a distance via the, the Zoom. Uh, my name is Andy Muller, M A H L E R. I live in Paoli, Indiana. I've lived down here since nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> 1985, I got involved in forest protection efforts because of Forest Service clear cuts in the Hoosier National Forest and then a proposal to build 112 miles of off-road vehicle trails, 56 here in Orange County and 56 in Brown County. We started a group called Protect Our Woods at that time. We got the Hoosier, uh, I'm cutting to the chase here, we got the Hoosier officially closed to off-road vehicles, the first national forest in the country officially designated as closed. And then we discovered there was a thing called the Forest Plan. The Forest Plan for the Hoosier, which was written in 1985, called for the entire forest basically to be clear cut on either an 80 or 120 year rotation. Five miles of road for every square mile of national forest, the entire forest open to oil and gas leasing and so forth and so forth ad nauseum. A lot of the people who were involved in the off-road vehicle issue went back to their lives after we were successful, but several of us stayed involved to try and see what this forest plan was and what if there was anything we could do to change it. We were actually remarkably successful in getting it changed from what many thought was the worst forest plan in the country to one of the better forest plans in the country. And then in 1991, with our success on the Hoosier, I worked with people in other states to form a, a regional cooperative forest protection network called Hartwood. And even 
even though we were extremely uh, resource poor and limited in the number of people that were actively involved in the issue, we were successful within a matter of 10 years in getting all logging stopped on the Hoosier Forest in Indiana, the Shawnee in Illinois, the Mark Twain in Missouri, the Allegheny in Pennsylvania, the Daniel Boone in Kentucky, and the, um, <clears throat> the Wayne in Ohio, which was truly a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, after that, I stopped being involved in forest protection as much as I turned my attention to other things, including, Rich, what you mentioned, the mountaintop removal in West Virginia, mm -hmm. which is a forest issue just in the sense that they bulldoze the forest into the most biologically diverse forests in North America in order to access thin seams of coal beneath. They were using 3 million pounds of ANFO, ammonium nitrate and fuel oil explosive, the same explosive that Timothy McVeigh used to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City, 3 million pounds a day in the mountains of West Virginia and the other Appalachian coal states. Something that if it was being done by a foreign nation would be considered an act of war, but since it was done by for-profit corporations in this country, it was viewed as business as usual. I spent many years after my involvement with environmental work doing uh, community organizing here in Southern Indiana, helping to organize a farmer's market and a member-owned co-op. But I was very happily retired the last few years until we got a little envelope in the mail from the Forest Service announcing a, uh, a project in Orange County in an area that they call Buffalo Springs. Here's a, a buffalo. Uh, they call it Buffalo Springs because the area, the, the total area that they were looking at was about 30,000 acres, of which about 18,000 is publicly owned, 12,000 privately owned. And what they're proposing for the uh, 12,000, 18,000 acres, I'm sorry, publicly owned land is um, logging, clear cutting, herbicide spraying, multiple repeated intentional fires, and building uh, 20, 19 miles of road, including converting eight miles of the horse trail that runs by our house into a logging road to access the clear cut. So Protect Our Woods, the very first organization I was involved with back in 1985, has uh, actually still existed on paper, although it had formally given up its not-for-profit status with the state and its uh, not-for-profit corporation status with the state. And so it exists in name only, but we have reclaimed that name and are using it in our efforts to stop the destruction of the Hoosier National Forest here in Orange County. So that's sort of some of the background. I would be glad to share any additional information you guys might want, but I'll let you go ahead and ask some questions now. Well, the thing I wanted to know is, just to start, is there anything we can still do? I heard about there was a deadline in November about uh, public talking about this. I, I'm not really sure of the status of all that and whether there's still something that we can do. Oh, excellent question, Rich, and thank you so much for bringing that up. Yes, there very definitely is, and I would encourage everybody listening to this show to take advantage of the opportunity that we were able to uh, accomplish with a great deal of effort. The Forest Service wanted to push this thing through the largest project in the history of the Hoosier National Forest in just 30 days. 30,000, dozens and dozens of separate logging, road building, and burning projects proposed and they wanted the public to provide them with site-specific comments in 30 days. So we were able to get them to agree 
They did not extend the comment period, but they agreed to uh, allow people to continue to submit substantive comments until they come up with their next step, which is going to be an environmental assessment. So I would encourage everybody to contact Kevin.amic, A-M-I-C-K, at USDA.gov. That's Kevin.amic at USDA.gov and ask him for more information about this project that they are proposing because this is just one of many in the pipeline. They have plans to extensively log and repeatedly burn thousands and thousands and thousands of acres in the Hoosier National Forest. And this is not isolated to Indiana or the Hoosier National Forest. This is happening all across the Eastern United States, in Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, West Virginia, and so forth. The Forest Service is getting back in the timber business in a big way, but one of the greatest obscenities of this project is that they don't even have the intellectual honesty to call timber cutting timber cutting. They call it restoration. Yeah. Yeah, Their idea of restoration involves bulldozers, log trucks, chainsaws. Yeah, restoration. Most people, they think of restoration, they imagine forest being left to grow to achieve something resembling the original wild natural condition of the healthy forest that covered this entire state or almost this entire state back at the time of European Euro-American settlement. But their idea of restoration, get this, is to restore the abused and degraded condition the land was in at the time they acquired the land for what would become the Hoosier National Forest. And just for the record, I'm not sure how old each of you are. Uh, I'm 70 years old. I was born in 1951. That was the same year that the Hoosier National Forest was established as a national forest. So the Hoosier National Forest and I are the same age. So that gives you an idea of how old the trees in the Hoosier are that they now want to log and burn because they get to keep the money. When they log for restoration, the Forest Service gets to keep all of the money. You are listening to a segment of the Inside Outdoors from February, covering the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project with hosts Richard Reardon and Andy Mahler as the guest. We now turn to the second half of that interview. Wow. So uh, I'm right in saying that, uh, as usual, when whatever the Forest Service is saying, they call it restoration and what, etc. Yabba yabba yabba. Whether it bottom line for them is always harvest. They have their their eye on the prize, meaning the money and the logs. And uh, this is the same deal. It's just they do. It, to... Go ahead. Yeah, Don, you're absolutely right. Since I've been involved in forest protection work, originally in, 19, in the 80s, they called the timber harvesting. But with timber harvesting, there was an expectation that the logging would make money and that that money would be returned to the treasury when people discovered that the national forests, including the Hoosier, were losing billions of dollars every year on their timber sale program, they became outraged, especially when recognizing that not only were they losing money, but they were destroying and degrading the forests in the process. 
So the Forest Service went through a fairly radical transformation. But just in the time I've been involved, it went from timber sales to then became something called salvage. From salvage, it went to something called sanitation, from sanitation to stewardship. And they finally settled on this term that I think they feel like they've really nailed it with this one, restoration. Who could possibly be against forest restoration? But the reality is, whether it was timber harvest, sanitation, salvage, stewardship, it all was about creating stumps and keeping the money. Well, there you go. And that's exactly what we're talking about. It's worth noting that the forests were originally established. It is. The forests were originally established as forest preserves in the Department of Interior. But back in the late 1800s, I believe it was, they got transferred to the Department of Agriculture. And the rest, as they say, is history. The Forest Service mindset is to look at a forest as a crop rather than as a healthy, natural, self-replicating ecosystem. What they are trying to do is simplify a complex system to maximize yields rather than to understand the complexity of that system and try and learn from it all the many ways in which we benefit from a healthy, natural, diverse forest rather than from the few commercially valuable species that they can extract. Well, and I think another thing that we haven't really mentioned yet is the forest doesn't just mean trees. It means all kinds of things. It means all the, the wildlife that lives there, uh, the birds that that we've been losing, you know, really fast. Anybody that, that lives in Indiana can, can notice a change in, in bird life. And thirdly, another thing I wanted to bring up is global warming. And um, if you create a situ- situation where you know, things are are warming up farther north. So if we look 10 or 20 years down the road, it may, we may not, we may want to have these cool um, forests to help, you know, buffer against some of the problems that we're going to be running into, because it's going to be like Arkansas around here uh, if we don't, you know, do some work. And so I see like three other things, you know, that are popping out of this. Well, the, the whole thing about Rich, there's uh, so many things in your trees, being, trees being necessary to replenish the sphere. And uh, the number one thing you can do is not cut down a tree. Yes. Absolutely. They, they claim that they need to take action in order to protect the oak component of the forest. What is it they're proposing to do to the oak component of the forest? cut it down and then repeatedly burn it. Rich, you made so many excellent points. One thing about the birds, let me just mention this. They have sought out the very few bird species that actually benefit from heavily cut over areas. And they claim that they now need to manage the forest for a handful of species that like cut over brushy areas rather than intensely forested areas, which a lot of the migratory songbirds depend on those closed canopy forests for breeding and nesting success. And yet rather than looking at the birds that have had significant population declines like the wood thrush and the cerulean warbler, they're looking at these other birds that are not at all endangered, but that require brushy habitat. But back to the other species that use a forest, let's think about this. Where does the life in a forest happen? We're used to looking up because that's where the most dramatic and charismatic species in the forest are the trees but the reality is the magic happens in the soil 
There's more life in a teaspoonful of soil, more biological diversity in a teaspoonful of soil than in the entire manifested tree uh, uh, species uh, mix of the overstory. What you're looking at in the soil is these incredibly complex mycelial networks that tie the various fungal uh, components of the forest together. And these mycelial networks connect the trees, the trees exchange nutrients, they exchange information through these mycelial networks. And the Forest Service completely ignores the uh, what's happening in the top few inches of the soil, which is what all life on the terrestrial parts of planet Earth depend on, is those top few inches of topsoil. What we are looking at is the Forest Service is proposing to dry out the forest. Everything they're doing in the name of restoration will exacerbate global climate change. One thing that uh, you're, we're finding is there's a growing body of research that's demonstrating conclusively that the most important thing we can do to mitigate global warming and climate change is to leave as much healthy, natural, mature forest standing as possible, not cut it down. And that's especially true here in the temperate regions, because apparently both in the... Um, the boreal forests of, say, Siberia and Canada, and even the Amazon and the tropical rainforest, both of those are being so heavily degraded that they are on the verge of becoming carbon sources as opposed to carbon sinks. Only these temperate zone hardwood forests and mixed hardwood forests like we have here in Indiana are actually continuing to absorb enormous quantities of carbon and they do much more than just absorb the carbon, of course. They mitigate uh, changes in climate and in temperature. They uh, filter the water and the air, and they provide enormous uh, reserves of biological diversity that we have only begun to understand in terms of the complexity of the systems that make up a, a true natural wild forest. Up next, catfish are dangerous on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Catfish, one of the most delicious, cheapest, and most sustainable sources of protein, omega-3s, and vitamin B12 on the planet. They've been around over 140 million years, are found all over the world, and the largest ever caught was 646 pounds. Right here in Lake Monroe, they can be up to 60 pounds. But now there's a new kind that's even bigger and extremely dangerous, even right in your own home. Catfishing is a relatively new term for a scam and we've mentioned it before, but now this practice is getting more sophisticated and can be totally terrifying. 
Catfishing is when someone constructs a fake identity, a completely false person on the Internet, usually on social media, by posting pictures of someone else and often stealing names and life information from a real person. This happens on dating websites, but all kinds of social media have been used for catfishing. Sometimes the catfish wants to steal money or identities, but all too often the object is sexual and the target is a child. Recently, a sheriff's deputy from Virginia catfished a teenage girl in California. He drove across the country, killed the girl's family, and kidnapped the girl. He killed himself during a shootout with police, and the girl was rescued. This is an extreme example, but catfishing is on the rise throughout the Internet. If there are children in your family, listen up. Children old enough to go online need to be taught about catfishing. This takes some time and several conversations, not just one. Interact online with your kids yourself and set a good example. Talk with them about how to stay safe and stay aware of what apps and programs the kids are using. Kids and anyone else should be super suspicious of anyone who wants the simple fact that they're talking to you kept secret. There are programs like Norton Family, Microsoft Family Safety, Google Family Link, and Apple Family Sharing that make it easy to keep an eye on your kids' digital lives. If someone sends pictures, use Google Reverse Images Search to find out what that picture really is and where it really came from. Kids can do that, and it's actually fun. Insist on doing a live video chat with any stranger you meet online. Catfishers don't dare do that. So if the other person never has the time or constantly has technical problems, watch out. And never, ever send money to any person you only know over the phone or online. Insist on a personal, face-to-face -face meeting before sending even one penny. No handshake, no money. That's a solid defense against catfishing and a lot of other con jobs, too. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.